This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading for Advent comes from selections from Genesis 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, no, David. This morning, I'd like to recall a fascinating story for me. It's the saga of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. As you can recall, in March of 2011, a massive earthquake that registered 9.0 on the Richter scale ravaged the interior of Japan. An ensuing 46-foot tsunami crashed on the seashore. Now, the earthquake knocked out the internal power source for the power plant. The ensuing tsunami knocked out the backup power generator that they felt was important to put right by the seashore, only protected by a 16-foot wall. This reactor did not have an automatic shutdown. It's an old-school reactor. And the cooling system stopped working. And then the pipes that route the radioactive water away from the cooling system for the nuclear power plant was compromised. And hence, you have the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. Now, TEPCO's response, TEPCO were standing for Tokyo Electric Power Company, their response was woefully inadequate. They ignored all the early warning signs given by international experts outside their country. They're slow to inform the public of the gravity of the situation. They're slow to disclose to their government and international agencies in the watching world the depth of their problem. 
They didn't ask for help from any outside nation, agency, or expert. They actually skimped on the early cleanup process, which has led to so much more bigger problems now. And they didn't plan for the foreseeable problems, the potential problems that they knew were going to happen. TEPCO did not embrace the severity of their problem. Now, I want you to think about the problem as it stands now, not March of 2011, but now in 2013. The radiation levels are way too high for human beings to get near the power plant. It may be at least 40 years before it's cool enough for them to actually safely clean up the mess. TEPCO actually doesn't know how bad the problem is because they just can't get close enough to it. They're just working with the symptoms of contaminated groundwater and leakage, which they actually have no ultimate plan to solve at the time being. Currently, three to four hundred gallons, I'm sorry, tons of contaminated groundwater flow into the Pacific Ocean every day. Just a word to the wise, if you're traveling to Japan, I'd stay away from the sushi for a little while. Each week, there's a new week, a new leak of contaminated water they're trying to contain. Currently, they're storing 90 million gallons of contaminated radioactive water. If you turned Yankee Stadium into a fishbowl, it would fill the entire stadium. And they have no idea what to do with it. And what's more terrifying is that number continues to grow day by day. They still have no real plan to separate the groundwater from the contaminated water of the nuclear power plant. They're still not asking international experts for help. And they're still not embracing the severity of the situation. TEPCO needs to be rescued. They're way in over their heads. Now, the reason I said from the outset this story is fascinating to me is it's a familiar story. It's our story. It's actually my story. It's how we live. The power plant's designed to do great things for that community, just like we are as human beings designed to do great things for our community. But the power plant, with them, we're just we're not the way we should be. Uh, like TEPCO, we hate to embrace the severity of our situation. Like TEPCO, we hate to bring outside experts in to help ourselves. Like TEPCO, we rather deal with the symptoms of the problems in our lives than the problems itself. And we're far more like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 than we would dare to admit. And we're far more tempted and confused by Satan than we care to face. And like Tepco, we need to be rescued. But that's really hard for us to embrace. Think about our text this morning. Early on in the passage, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And in that beautiful, perfect, transcendent creation, he made man and he made woman. He created them in image. He gave them worth and value and dignity. Uh, they're breathtaking and beautiful. And he gave them the earth to subdue, to grow in, to multiply, to expand in, to take his image and cover its compass, to, to take it over, to represent him as his vice regents. And like Adam and Eve, we're creating God's image. And even though we're marred by sin, we have intrinsic worth and value. And like Adam and Eve, we're called to represent God and to fill the earth and to bring order and truth and goodness and grace to its ends. But if we're honest with ourselves, our lives rarely look like this. We're often filled with fears and doubts. We're aware of the dysfunction of our homes, but not only of our homes, our hearts. We live out of shame each and every day, and we're driven to cover that shame just like Adam and Eve. And then each and every day, each and every moment, we're constantly subtly questioning God's word, his authority, his grace, his truth. 
For those of you who do our City Bible Reading Initiative, think about Thursday's reading, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by its own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. I mean, how many of us can't relate to that each and every day where we're tempted and lured and hooked by some desire and that desire doesn't go away and it grows and it gives birth to sin and that sin drags us to death and destruction that day. We're very much like that failed Apollo 13 mission. Houston, we've got a problem. This morning, I'd like to look at three things about our problem. We're gonna look at the description of our problem the devastation of our problem, and the deliverance of our problem. Description, devastation, deliverance. First, let's look at the description of our problem. Every human being has a twofold problem, sin and Satan. Both are running an offense against you. Both are actually running the same offense against you. And it's simply this, to take God's place to take God's place. First, let's look at Satan, uh, chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now look what Satan does. He reduces God's command to a question. He subtly changes God's word to make it appear harsh and a little too restrictive. He's beginning to doubt God's sincerity and putting to question God's goodness. He's defaming God's motives and it seems to be a little burdensome. Now let's stop right here. How often do you find yourself feeling like God's commands are restrictive and burdensome and not for your good? How often do you doubt or question the sincerity of God's word? Now, just think about that for a second. How do you think you got there? Look at verses four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan blatantly contradicts God's word here. He's trying to remove fears and barriers to disobedience. He's trying to get Eve to doubt the truthfulness of this threat. And then he lies. You'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. You know, to be like God and to outwit him would be an intoxicating proposition, wouldn't it? Think about it. How often do you find yourselves finding your barriers to disobedience slowly withering away from something you really want to do, but you know you should not? And think about how often you long to be in total charge of your life. I think that's my heart constantly. Now, Satan's game plan is to get you and stand in judgment over God's word, to evaluate God's word as his equal, and to stop believing in God's lordship over you. Now, look at Eve. When she began to weigh God's command in one hand, she had Satan's word on the other hand. And who was in the middle? Eve. She began to evaluate, you know, is God's word really beneficial to me? She's now the arbitrator, the judge, the authority of what truth is. She's assuming she has the right and the wisdom to determine whether she wants to choose to obey God's word. She's treating God's word like a fruit. Do I want to eat this? Is it good for me? Do I, do I think it's the best option for me? She's simply assuming God's place at that moment. She's already sinned. The fall has already begun. She is now taking God's place and authority over God's word. 
This is Satan's strategy to get you to take God's place, to stand in judgment over his word. Houston, we've got a problem. Think about how often we do this. Uh, Think about how often we constantly pick and choose what we want to obey and dismiss from God's word. We stand over God's word most of the time. Think about if you do city Bible reading, what you read this past week. I can't get past Thursday and Friday from James. I think I've made a a, a New Year's resolution not to read the book of James next year. I mean, mean, think about Friday's reading, or actually it's Thursday's reading, uh, a pure and undefiled religion that's taking care of widows in their distress. I better dismiss that really fast because I don't know any widows in distress. And what does that say about me? Oh, and you need to be he- hear- doers of God's word, not hearers of God's word. And you, know, you better not play favoritism while you're at it. Oh, man. What do we do? We dismiss and we question God's word. Satan's running an offense against you and it's to take God's place. And it's working. But I wish that was our only problem. We have a twofold problem. You got Satan on one hand and you got sin on the other hand. Satan's only half the problem because our sinful flesh loves to join him in that offense. Look at verses six and seven. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We quickly see that Eve placed pragmatic values and aesthetic appearance and sensual desires over God's word. Eve was wanting blessing and fulfillment apart from God and his word. She wasn't just wanting more information. She was wanting the power that comes from that information and knowledge. And look how the word good is distorted. Ironically, good and evil are no longer rooted in what God says, but rooted in what Eve thinks. See, the promise of self-sufficiency is really intoxicating. How would Eve gain wisdom? By hearing and obeying God's word. But Eve thought she was wiser than God's commands. See, sin puts you in the place of God. Sin is far more than just breaking rules. It's your desire to be your own authority. It's your desire to take God's place. Now let's stop and think about this again. How often do you do this? How often do you go to other things to find blessing and fulfillment apart from God's word? How often do you go to your spouse or your kids or your job or your accomplishment or your image or your beauty or your success or your checkbook to find that? How often do you find yourself chasing self-sufficiency? Think about how much you love at times not have to depend on God and his word. And think about how often you've thought, you know, if I was God, I would do this differently. Houston, we've got a problem. My favorite business author, actually my favorite author in general is Jim Collins. And he has this great concept. He calls it the Stockdale Paradox. See, Jim Stockdale is a Navy admiral, but went back a long time ago. He was held captive in eight, for eight years in Vietnam. And during that time in captivity in Vietnam for eight years, he was tortured more than 20 times. And when I say tortured, I mean severely tortured. And he had no real reason to think he'd survive, but he did. And why did he survive? There was far more men that were more optimistic, thinking they'd get rescued by Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, but they never were, and they all died. And this is what he had to say. You must retain faith that you'll prevail in the end, regardless of difficulties. 
And at the same time, you must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. See, in the gospel, we have reason to think we'll prevail in the end, and I'll talk about that more in a few moments. But I want to focus on what he said in the end of his statement. You must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. See, your current reality is you have a twofold problem. Satan's tempting you to take God's place over God's word. Your sin is enticing you to take God's place and be an authority unto yourself. Do you live like this is true? Or are you more like Tepco? Are you getting outside help? Are you planning for the war that's within you? Are you constantly looking at the brutal facts of your heart? And are you looking at the real problems deep within or just the symptoms that you can see on the outside? Again, are you dealing with the real severity of the problem? You know, this description of our problem in our Advent reading is scary enough, but it leads to the devastation, the impact, the results of this problem. So let's look at that now, the devastation of our problem. You see, for Adam and Eve, their quest to know more about good and evil, they got a lot more than they bargained for. It's like trying to understand the bubonic plague. You can know it by studying it, or you can know it by being infected of it. One type of knowledge is far more desirable than the other. Adam and Eve thought they are going to get this academic introduction to good and evil, like it was a Rubik's Cube, and they can examine it from multiple sides and kind of play with it. Yet their understanding became one of being infected by evil. It's a knowledge they desperately do not want anymore. You see, this devastation, this twofold problem has far-reaching effects. And for the sake of time, I only want to focus on three uh, devastations of our problem. Spiritual devastation, psychological devastation, and sociological devastation. First, the spiritual devastation. We'll pick up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. You know, to walk with in Hebrew, it's an idiom. It's to have fellowship and relationship and community and intimacy with someone you really care about. God came to enjoy his people and spend time with them and grab them by the scruff of the neck and pull them close and love on them and kiss on their neck. But look at what sin does. They hid themselves. From the presence, which literally means the face. They hid their faces from God's face. Look how far they fell. Instead of having joy that their God was with them, they were filled with terror. Instead of running to him to be embraced by him and to embrace him, they find themselves running away. Simply put, spiritual devastation makes you uneasy with God. Now think about it. This room was filled with a bunch of followers of Jesus right now. And right now, there's a bunch of Christians in this room who feel distant from God, alienated from God, fearful from God. Even though, you know, know, it's intellectually not true, you believe God's disappointed with you. You believe he's angry with you. Now, we know better. This is one of the reasons we're at New City. The gospel is preached every Sunday where Jesus has made us righteous and there's no hostility between the Father and the Son and us because Jesus obliterated that hostility and he made peace and he reconciled us. And this is why we do see Bible reading every morning because we want to be thankful of how Jesus has saved us and be reminded of that great grace. And this is why we're in community groups because we need men and women in our lives preaching the gospel to us and reminding us of it and teaching us how to rehearse the beauty of the gospel And the rank and file of you do that every week. 
and the gospel just drains out of your heart for some reason, and you find yourself uneasy with God. There's a spiritual devastation to our problem, which starts leading to the next part, which is our psychological devastation. Look at verse 7. The eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Now, like, this is literally the opposite of Genesis 2.25, where they are both naked and not ashamed. Can you imagine that? Adam and Eve walking around, you know, the clothes God gave them in their birth, strutting around, totally comfortable with each other. But then sin entered the world with deep psychological disorientation. They're not only alienated from God, but they're alienated from themselves. See, when you lose God and who he is, you lose who you are. Think about how much fear, anxiety, inadequacy lies within you right now. No one, no matter how great their parents are, comes into the world believing they're okay. The way the word naked is used here is to be defenseless and weak and humiliated. See, to be a sinner in this world is sadly to experience shame. And if I could define shame for you in simple terms, shame is a sense of unease with yourself. We try to deny it. We try to cover it up. We try to fight against it. But the sad reality for every human being in this room is we experience shame. At the heart of your being, even if you don't want to admit it to yourself, you're uneasy with who you are. Now, I've thought about this often. I'm 40 now. I still think I'm 25 inside my head. When I think about who I am at 40 and who I want to be when I was 40, when I was 25, I'm filled with shame. And I'm filled with inadequacy. You see, when we, at our heart being, see that we're uneasy with who we are, we, we work like crazy to cover it up and justify ourselves. And so you'll see that spiritual devastation leads to psychological devastation, leads to sociological devastation. Again, let's pick up in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, why did they cover themselves up? Why do they hide from each other even before God gets there? They're now self-conscious. And so because they're self-conscious, they cover themselves. It's an important lesson here. If you cannot trust and be transparent with God, then there's no way you can be trust and be transparent with any other human being. Unless you know you're absolutely loved by God, you'll constantly hide from other people or use other people. Unless you realize and in your heart of hearts that your Father in heaven now loves you because Jesus absorbed all the wrath you deserve for your sins and he's ravished with you and he enjoys you and you're like a southern meal that he wants to sop up with a biscuit until you see that in your heart of hearts. You're going to use people. Think about that. Think about how we try to cover up for our shame. We get choosy about who we pick with to hang out with and do community with, and we alienate others. And we alienate others because it's so much more comfortable people beneath you so you can build up your righteousness, your identity in that. And even if you choose people, you're choosing people because ultimately it helps you somehow. It helps you make you feel better about who you are. But even when you choose people to cover up, you still cover up. You're not really who you really are with these people you've chosen to be with, but what you think they want. Let me give you one short example of this. Think about our marriages. If you're married, when sin and shame impacts your marriage, what happens? Clothes come on. Clothes stay on. Clothes stay on a lot. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's a lot of marriages right now, sadly, where the clothes are on way too much. 
But what happens when sin and shame are addressed and removed and the gospel brings light? Clothes come off, clothes stay off, and clothes stay off very often. Do you see the devastating impact of sin sociologically? You're just uneasy with others. Houston, we got a problem and it's devastating us. You know, the most beautiful thing about this passage, it's the first gospel promise in the Bible. So not only do we get a description of our problem, not only do we see the devastation of our problem, we see the deliverance from our problem. What I love about Genesis 3.15 is God is actually not directly talking to humanity in this passage. He's talking to Satan. This is about him cursing Satan. This is about his world and his kingdom, his reign and his angst and what he's going to do. This is where we're really excited that God is holy and just and wrathful because we're seeing his wrath in full bear. See, God knows that no medicine or training program or resourcing or aids are enough for our problem. He knows we need a complete and perfect rescue. He knows we need a deliverance, and this is exactly what he provides in promise form. Look at verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we see this cosmic battle. There's enmity. There's hostility between God and Satan. But look who God chooses to put on his team. The woman. The woman that rebelled against him. In grace, God says, in his cursing to Satan, guess what? Humanity's with me. Eve's with me, and her offspring is going to crush you. There's a battle between offspring, the, the Hebrew word here is seed. It could mean immediate singular descendant, a distant singular offspring, or a large group of descendants. And from the context, it's clear that it's B, a singular distant person. The Hebrew word here for um, bruise is suf. It can mean strike or bruise or crush. Now, the Hebrew lexicon didn't have a lot of words to pick with. And so translating Hebrew is more art than it is science. The Greek language had more words to pick with, which makes it more science than art. So context in Hebrew really matters, and it helps you understand how to translate a word. The English Standard Version went with the King James Version, and they went safe with bruise. That's fair. It's not bad. It's not great. But the Septuagint, the Latin translation of the Bible, and the NIV, I think, do a better job because they pay attention to the context. And the context is the words the head and the heel. So a serpent will bruise a heel or strike at a heel? I think strike. And the person, are they going to bruise the head of a serpent or crush the head of a serpent? I've took on a snake once in my life. I actually had a shovel, not just a boot. But I went after the head. And I wasn't trying to bruise the snake. I was trying to crush the snake. This is the gospel. Satan will strike the heel of Jesus, and it'll be a mortal blow. But Jesus will crush his head, and there's going to be victory. You have a problem, and it's devastating. But the gospel is, you have been, you are being, and you will be delivered. Jesus, in his life, lived righteously for us. In his death where Satan thought he struck him and won in that mortal blow. What Jesus did is conquer the power of sin and death. And in his resurrection, he says, I have power over sin and death. That penalty has been removed from my people. 
In Advent, we celebrate that first coming of Jesus. And then we also celebrate the second Advent of Jesus as he comes into our hearts. And he takes up space and he gives us power against sin and Satan right now. But we can't wait for that third Advent of Jesus where Jesus will come and make the world the way it ought to be and remove the presence of sin and Satan for all and he will give that mortal blow and he will crush Satan. That's the gospel. This morning, even as we move towards the Lord's Supper, we have to make a choice of what we're going to choose to remember and what we're going to choose to live in. And I say, let's celebrate the life, death, and resurrection and the second coming of Jesus and find our hope in there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for what you've done for us. Father, we recognize that we don't take on the severity of our problem enough, which is what makes the gospel so trite and little to us. Father, I pray that as we respond to your preached word, you'd give us the eyes to see not only the severity of our problem, but the beauty and the magnitude of our salvation in Christ and his glory. And we pray this all in your matchless and beautiful name, Lord Jesus.